their seat. We're going to have a, um, immediately after Bible class tonight, I'm going to have Jeff come up and give us a, a short report on the, um, <coughs> yes, I did. That those Yes, that, that's right. After 10 minutes, everybody's free to go home. <laughs> All right. Yeah, we'll hear. Uh, they had a great, great time. So let me review announcements very briefly. Um, just a reminder about to continue to pray for Camp Arete for the summer. Uh, communion is going to be this third Sunday in May, and the uh, next men's prayer breakfast will be and deacons meeting will be on December, uh, December the 21st. We need to continue to pray for George Mueller. I think he is uh, improving uh, a little bit here and there, so uh, continue to pray for, for him. Isn't that right, Gene? Do you have a more recent update? Okay, so he is he is improving. Okay. Hmm? May 21st. Did I say December? I'm thinking about something else. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, let's have a few moments of silent prayer. And then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we're again grateful for all your many blessings towards us, your grace toward us, the way you provide for all of our needs, the way you provide for and sustain us in every area of our life. Father, we continue to pray for folks in the church that are having difficulty, some without jobs, some who are having challenges with their health. We pray for each one. We pray that you would uh, sustain them and that during their time of testing that it would be a time where they uh, grow closer to you and walk in closer obedience uh, to you. Uh, Father, we continue to pray for George Mueller and for his healing, for the family, for the uh, things that went on with the flooding. And, Father, we pray that they would just have tremendous opportunities to witness to those that are around them. We're thankful that Jeff and Doug had a a very uh, spiritually successful trip down to Brazil, and we continue to pray for them. Pray for Jim Myers as he heads down to to, uh, Zambia, and pray that uh, you'll (coughs) enable him to have a a very uh, successful ministry there as he addresses the topic of spiritual warfare. We pray that you'd challenge us with what we study this evening. and that we might come to think in terms of the long view and the end game in terms of our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in 1 Peter chapter 1, and we're talking about the the judgment, uh, the judgment that comes to for every believer at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, it's been interesting because last Thursday night I began with this. We covered it from a slightly different vantage point as part of a review lesson on Sunday, and I always get a lot of uh, uh, a lot of positive response from folks when I synthesize and summarize things like that. 
and then we're continuing it again tonight. And so there's a review and overlap. Uh, sometimes uh, people may think that, uh, well, I just keep hearing the same thing. But remember, Matthew is in the Matthew series and Peter's in the Peter's series, First uh, Peter series. And sometimes people are not like the people who listen to these out of order and not by sitting here are not getting this in the concentrated dose that you, you all are. They're listening to Matthew straight through, and then they're listening to Peter straight through, so they don't necessarily go over and listen to the complementary uh, lessons. So we're going to look at the judgment seat of Christ tonight in a number of different ways. And just a reminder of where we are in First Peter one thirteen through 16, there Peter is beginning to address the spiritual life. And one way we know this is because he begins to use imperatives commands, giving instructions to his readers as to what they need to do. It grows out of what he says in the first 12 verses where he mentions inheritance, he mentions suffering, he indicates, he talks about future uh, future rewards, and so the uh, first two mandates are found in verses 13 and verse 15, to rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. So it's a future orientation. Uh, it's hope. Hope is a problem-solving device. It is uh, our personal sense of our eternal destiny. First uh, Peter 1.15, we're to be holy in all of our conduct. And that word conduct is also an important word that uh, here it's the uh, uh, noun form, and then we run into the verb form in verse 17. To, that we are to conduct ourselves, there it's again in the imperative, conduct ourselves throughout your time of your stay here in fear. So that, that summarizes what we've said so far. Then it's basically three things that we are to live in hope, live on the basis of hope that's related to the future revelation of the grace of God, and that will be manifest when Jesus appears, and that's followed by the judgment seat of Christ. So we're to live in light of our future. We're to live in light of eternity. That's the problem, uh, problem-solving problem device of our personal sense of our eternal destiny. And we're to be holy. That relates to two of the problem-solving devices, confession of sin, whereby we move from being experientially experientially walking in darkness and not in the light to where we're walking in the light and we're living a life that is set apart unto God. This focuses on also on the two other problem-solving devices, grace orientation as well as doctrinal orientation. And then the third command is to live your life based on the fear of God, and that relates to doctrinal orientation. Remember in the Old Testament, what is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge? It's the fear of the Lord. So that is doctrinal orientation where we learn the Word of God and God strengthens our soul with His, with His Word and that develops into our personal love for God as we come to understand all that He has done and all that He has provided for us. So as we came out of that, I raised this question, how do we achieve this holy life? So many people have uh, erroneous ideas about holy living. And they confuse holy living with moral living. And not that holy living is immoral, but it's different. A, a, an unbeliever can live a moral life. A, a Someone who is involved in a cult can live a moral life. The moral life is very different from the spiritual life. Spiritual life is enhanced and empowered by the Word of God and the Spirit of God as that which sets it apart as distinct 
from simply moral living. So we, first of all, we need to think as God thinks, Romans 12, 2. We need to quit thinking like Satan and the world thinks. Same verse, Romans 12, 2. Not to be conformed to the world, which is Satan's system of thinking manifested through the various cultures in the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And third, we need to focus on the end game. That's what uh, Peter is talking about consistently all the way through here that our present behavior needs to be shaped by our understanding of what takes place in the future at the judgment seat of Christ and beyond. So in verse 17, he says, if you call on the Father, and then he defines the Father in terms of future judgment. He is the one who, uh, <clears throat> without partiality, judges uh according to each one's work. And so I pointed out last time that that this command uh, or this phrase judges without partiality according to each one's work is sandwiched between two uses of the word that's translated conduct, our behavior, the sum total of our lifestyle. First uh, Peter one fifteen, he who called you is holy. You also be holy in all of your conduct, and that's the <clears throat> that's the noun anastrophe. And this word just sort of it's a very broad word, and the root meaning of this word means to turn around. But it came to be applied in one of its several key nuances to refer to a person's conduct, a person's way of life. In fact, it's used in the Old Testament to refer to a person's walk, you know, their lifestyle, how they how they walk, how they live. So that's the, the sum total there. So verse 15 uses the noun, verse 17 uses the verb in terms of the command that uh, to conduct yourselves, that is to live your life, to manage your way of life, to oversee our lifestyle uh, <clears throat> through the time of our stay, stay here by means of fear, that is fear of God. So that takes us back to an objective standard, which is the word of God, because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and knowledge. Where do we get wisdom and knowledge? We get that from the word of God. So it takes us back to doctrinal orientation. So this word becomes a very, very important word. We have the verb form here, and we also have the noun form uh, <clears throat> that shows up in uh, various other verses. So the noun form is the form on a strophe, on a strophe. So we show, see that in the verses, verse 15, which we just talked about, but then we'll see it again when we get into verse 18. Now, the structure of verse 18 gives us the ground or the reason for the command. We are to conduct our lives in fear. Why? On what basis? How do we do that? It's because we know something. We know something about why we were saved and how we were saved. And and sometimes I hear people, and I've been critical too, We go to you go to some churches, and you sort of hear the gospel a thousand and one ways, and then you repeat and then after 10 years, you've heard the gospel maybe 10,000 times, the same, and each one's a little different. But it just never really gets off the dime into the, into the spiritual life. And you can be critical of that, and I can be critical of that because there's so much more that needs to be taught from the Word. But one of the values of that 
is that it constantly reminds people of what was done to save us, and that is valuable. That is what Peter's getting at here. The motivation, or one motivation for our spiritual life, is having a great appreciation for what the Lord Jesus Christ went through on the cross, the full dimensions of that salvation, and what he provided for us in terms of, uh, of eternal life. But this idea of our lifestyle, how we live, is a major theme all through both Peter and First uh, Peter and Second Peter. In Second Peter, it's used with some negative adjectives to talk about not having a, a, a an empty lifestyle, a negative lifestyle, a wrong lifestyle. But here in First Peter, it's mostly positive. In First Peter two twelve. In just the next chapter, he says, having your conduct, that is, living your lifestyle honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, be your, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And just like in 1 Peter 1.17, that, that uses the word uh, on, on a strepho, the verb, in close connection with the command to be holy and uh, in, in relation to works. So we have that same connection here in 1 Peter 2.12, that works relate to the general lifestyle of in, any believer. It's not just focusing on specific moral actions or obedience to the law, but it refers to our overall conduct at all times. In chapter 3, Peter relates it to the lifestyle of wives. He says that uh, uh, wives are to be submissive to their own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, without a word they may be won by the lifestyle, by the conduct, everything from priorities to behavior, um, by the conduct of their wives, when they observe your chaste conduct, accompanied by fear so we have this term conduct once again associated with the word with the word fear and then when we get to 1 Peter 3:16 Peter says having a good conscience that when they defame you as evil doers those who revile your what your good conduct uh, it's the same word so uh, this is Peter's Peter's uh, Peter's emphasis here and this is why when we're talking, when, when he brings this up, when we get into 1 Peter uh, 1, 1, 17, he's talking about that God is judging each one according to their work. Now, last time I pointed out that there's two basic judgments that come in the future. We looked more specifically at the, at the great white throne judgment, and I brought in this chart where Jesus... Uh, timeline going back to the cross, we have the present church age ending with the rapture, at which time we have the judgment seat of Christ known as the Bema seat, followed by the seven years of tribulation, the second coming of Christ, and this in, involves these three, um, <clears throat> the first resurrections, rather Christ, the first fruits, then the rapture of the church, the uh, two witnesses that are uh, taken to heaven, uh, translated to heaven at the midpoint of the tribulation, and then the uh, resurrection of the Old Testament and tribulation uh, martyrs at the end of the tribulation. Then there's a judgment for the for the nations, the separation of the sheep and the goats, and there's a judgment for the Antichrist and the false prophet who are sent directly to the lake of fire. 
And so these judgments take place. There's also judgments of the Gentiles who survive, the Jews who survive, the Old Testament saints and tribulation saints. So these are the ones who die as well as the ones who survive, get their judgment there. Then we have the millennial kingdom, second resurrection, which is the unsaved, and that's the great white throne judgment where we saw last time they are judged according to their works. And then the last thing that happens is Satan is cast into the lake of fire uh, following the rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom. Uh, so we have this judgment according to their works. Now what we saw last time was that based on Titus 3.5 and Ephesians 2.8 and 9 and, and Romans, Romans chapter 4 and Galatians uh, 2.16, we are not justified by works. We are not saved according to our works. But So what is this judgment according to works? It has to mean that it is something, has to do with something other than our eternal destiny, something other than going to heaven. It has to do with our rewards and roles and responsibilities uh, in the kingdom and on into the eternal state. So at the very end of the New Testament revelation, Jesus says, uh, behold, I'm coming quickly. That means when I come, all these things will happen very rapidly, one after another. My reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. A definite connection there. Rewards are earned. They're not freely given. Salvation is freely given. So there's a distinction between rewards and uh, salvation. Salvation is free, freely given. But Rewards can be lost, that is, the potential rewards cannot be realized through failure and lack of uh, spiritual service, spiritual growth. Second John 1 8, John says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose the things we worked for, but that we may receive a full reward. So again, he's talking about works. That's uh, the lifestyle of the believer in terms of obedience. So that brought us to talking about the judgment seat of Christ. I don't think we got a whole lot further than this. Now, one of the things that I didn't get to last time due to a lack of time, but I talked about uh, witnessing uh, a way in which you can witness to, to, to Jewish people and going through this issue of righteousness, that we're not saved according to works of righteousness. We're not, Galatians 5.16, we're not justified by the works of the law. So how was somebody justified in the Old Testament? And we went through passages in the Old Testament talking about uh, Isaiah 64, 6, all the works of righteousness are its filthy rags. So how do we get righteous? Abraham, Genesis 15, 6. Abraham received righteousness by uh, by faith. Uh, because of his faith in God, God imputed to him righteousness. And we then we looked at uh, Isaiah 53, 10 to 12, that it is the righteous servant, it is God's suffering servant, who is righteous and will justify many. And all the, through those, all those verses, the key words is sedica, which is a word that, that resonates in rabbinical theology in the second temple period and on into the, uh, into present Judaism as good works, good deeds. Sometimes they even translate it as charity. So a question often comes up, well, how, how were Jews, Jews saved? Are they saved today on the same basis they were saved uh, in the Old Testament? 
are in the New Testament? Are, are they saved another way? Because some people see there are many uh, very religious, very pious Jews. And this has been a motivation from several groups, as I mentioned in the past, to somehow try to change the dynamics of how uh, Jewish people are saved, that they're saved on another covenant. That's one view. Uh, others come along and say, no, we've misunderstood what, what Paul is talking about when he refers to the works of the law, that that just refers to, to um, uh, the ceremonial. It doesn't refer to the, the moral aspects of the law. But Jews are saved by trusting in Jesus as the Messiah, just as every person is, because that's our only means of salvation. Some people say, well, what about a situation like the Holocaust? What about the Holocaust? There were six, almost six million Jews who were killed in the Holocaust. They're rounded up like cattle, horribly put on in boxcars taken off to places like like uh, Kelmno and Treblinka and Auschwitz where they were basically just taken off the trains and put in gas chambers or shot. Uh, the, how would they hear, ever hear about the gospel? Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever thought that, well, maybe, maybe a few of them heard about the gospel? Well, let me tell you, I've been doing a lot of reading. As you know, I'm leaving in another week, a uh, week from tomorrow, to go to uh, to go to. Israel to study in a study course at um, uh, Yad Vashem on the Holocaust. So I've been doing a lot of background reading and checking on other things. One of the one of the issues that that comes up, and I've read uh, extensively on this, is that that it just seems like a, a a mass, almost a massive conspiracy of ineptness and procrastination, as well as some anti-Semitism, that prevented any kind of uh, any, anything where people interceded for the, or rescued, uh, rescued the Jewish people. And the question is, why didn't people speak up more? And, of course, who's the usual whipping boy for most people? Can you, can you think of the word? If you're thinking fundamentalist, dispensationalist, you got it. We're everybody's whipping boy. They don't ever say anything. Those fundies are just passive. They never get involved in social things. All they want to do is they're, they're just concerned about the gospel. But that's act, actually not true. What I'm reading from is a book. Uh, it's a doctoral dissertation by Jim Owen, who was at the uh, who teaches at the Master Seminary, called "The Hidden History of the Historic Fundamentalists from 1933 to 1948." And he has done a masterful work at demonstrating that that the the fundamentalists were not these passive do nothing kind of people that they were involved, but their priority was always the gospel and and he makes that clear in a lot of, of different areas i haven 't read everything in this dissertation i 've spot read it read different chapters. One of the things that we ought to remember is coming out of the fundamentalist modernist controversy in the beginning of the 20th century is that most of the major denominations managed to hold on to the universities, the colleges, the seminaries, the property, the churches, the money. So what happens by the end of the 20s, the Bible-believing Christians who have separated uh, don't have the schools and the money and the bank accounts anymore. So they're limited in terms of what they can do, but they weren't uh, totally without uh, some prestige. And Owen points out that there were several major uh, journals 
such as uh, Moody Monthly, Donald Gray Barnhouse's Journal Revelation, another journal called The King's Business, The Sunday School Times, and Prophecy Monthly that did publish articles, and the fundamentalists, the dispensational fundamentalists were among the very first, if not the very first, to warn about the Holocaust. Where did they get their information? They got their information from, from many Jewish missionary, Hebrew Christian-based mission organizations, uh, such as the London uh, Society for the Propagation of the Gospel among the Jews, that it had missionaries in Eastern Europe for almost a hundred years, for at least since the since the 1830s. And as a result of that, there was a huge revival that took place. Uh, in Eastern Europe, uh, in the pale, what was known as the Pale of Settlement. Today we refer to the Baltic states, Lithuania, uh, Latvia, uh, those, those areas, um, Poland, uh, Belarus, uh, Ukraine. Of course, the boundaries have all changed since um, uh, since that time. But a lot was going on. One thing that he mentions here is that every year at Moody Memorial Church. In Chicago, they had a what they called then Palestine Week. Today they call it Israel Week. Uh, but back then, Palestine meant Israel, and it referred to Jews. The Palestinians were Jews until Arafat co-opted the term in the early, early 60s. And he, he points out that, that, um, uh, that in one of the sermons, I don't have, I'll get to that quote in just a minute, but in, in one of the sermons, the, the pastor was quoting an article that was published in an orthodox um, in, a, in an orthodox Jewish orthodox publication, and they had printed a telegram from Poland where they were complaining that it was reaching a, 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 almost a, a, a plague proportion, the number of young people who were uh, willingly converting to Christianity. Isn't that interesting? See, because there was this close connection between the evangelicals in the U.S. and these Hebrew Christian missionary groups, those Hebrew Christian missionary groups were also feeding intelligence, information back to their home churches, back to their home organizations that were talking about the increase of anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe, uh, the impact of the gospel in Eastern Europe, and as early as 1931, Donald Gray Barnhouse, who was the pastor of the 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, uh, and he had a he, he was sort of the Chuck Swindoll or or uh, John MacArthur of his generation in terms of popularity. He's on the radio all the time. He is uh, he's got many different publications that are coming out. He published a. Um, a regular magazine. I don't think, I know if it was monthly. It might have been monthly magazine called Revelation. He was the editor of it. And as early as 1931, he was drawing attention in that magazine to Hitler's attitude towards the Jews in Germany and how his fellow fascists wanted to ghettoize them. And then in 1933, he devoted at least four major articles uh, in, in uh, the, his, the issues on uh, dealing with anti-Semitism. Uh, he also talked about everything that was beginning to happen in Germany. And in an editorial entitled Love the Jews, he stressed yet again because of the growing anti-Semitism 
you know, this is a message that resonates today. Because of the growing anti-Semitism, the Christians must go out of their way to speak kindly to the Jews and to support them. In an article called Tomorrow, Jewish Travail, he dealt with the increasing acts of anti-Semitism in Germany, uh, which, because they were so widespread, had to have the approval uh, of the government. And, uh, um, and that is, he, what he's saying is there's so many of these things taking place that the government had to had to approve of them. And goes on to talk about those things. Uh, during the Chafer Conference, we had uh, a, a Jewish missionary here. Gave the uh, if you haven't watched the video, haven't seen it of uh, the Seder presentation. It was a very good, very enjoyable. I had a great sense of humor. And um, Bill Katz was here, and the president of Chosen People Ministries, the organization he's with, is a guy named Mitchell Mitchell uh, Glazer. Our, and uh, Mitch Glazer got his PhD from Fuller Seminary, and he's footnoted in this book, and it's a good summary. He said that he, he, he wrote in his doctoral dissertation, which I'm reading right now, just a, a massive collection of information, a lot of which has its source not in reports from the missionaries sending home and saying, look, this is what we accomplished. We had 20 conversions last week. It, it's, he, much of his evidence is from citations from Jewish, from, from letters from uh, rabbis and organizations in Eastern Europe who are saying, "Give us help because we've got so many. So many of our people are converting to Christianity." Uh, Glazer has evidence that an, uh, entire villages in Lithuania uh, were converting to Christ. This was in, in the period just after World War One, uh, World War Two, and, and between World War One and World War Two. And if you think about that. Most of those Jews that converted to Christianity in that time period ended up where? They were being rounded up and being sent to the death camps. And do you think they kept their mouths silent? I don't think so. And uh, in this book, he cites statistics that, that indicate that somewhere between 250,000 and 300,000 uh, Jewish Christians, they were the ones who were arrested, were, were sent to the ch- gas chambers. These aren't converts that got sent to the chain. These were they were already Christians before they got uh, sent to the death camp. So you have two hundred fifty, three hundred thousand uh, evangelists going to the death camp. So we don't have any idea how many people heard the gospel and how many people might have responded to the gospel. Uh, Glazer says in his dissertation. Nothing could compare with the numbers of Jewish people who became believers in Jesus between the wars. He believes that, quote, the number of Jews who became Christians during the first third of the 20th century may have been more than 230,000. And he has lots of uh, documentations for that. Uh, He says um, he gives some other information about that as well. Another comment related to the uh, comment I made earlier about the pastor at Moody, uh, Moody, no, this is a, the president of Moody Bible Institute, Will Houghton, uh, said that, uh, quoted this article that was from a uh, uh, Jewish Orthodox publication. And here's, here's the quote. Just before the break of Poland, the Morning Journal, the New York Morning Journal, which is the official organ of Jewish Orthodoxy in America, published a cable from Warsaw which said, the spread of Christianity among the Jewish school youth in Warsaw is truly assuming proportions of a mass movement. Isn't that amazing? It's, it, it's just phenomenal what was, 
uh, what was uh, going on at that particular time. Um, and then there's a report from the Swedish, um, I think it's a Swedish-Israel mission that was located in Vienna. And they had a church and chapel. And he cites several similar kinds of uh, uh, documentary evidence that when the Anschluss took place, that's when Germany uh, took over Austria, it literally scared the hell out of the Jewish community. And they realized their days were numbered. They, they knew to take Hitler seriously. And so one of the reports from the SIM mission, uh, which was temporarily closed and was reopened, he said for the first time not only the chapel, but even the big entrance hall was crowded by Jews of the highest rank in education and by the poorest as well, now all eager to listen to the gospel of salvation and life everlasting. None of us will ever forget that service, not only because of the Spirit resting upon the congregation, but because it began a wonderful revival which lasted summer and winter until June 1941 when the Gestapo forbade the preaching of the gospel uh, to the Jews. He says that during that time, hundreds of Jews in Vienna were converted and became believing Christians. Many of them had to suffer even death for Christ and thus won the crown of glory. The hunger for the word of God was so great that at the outbreak of the war in September 1939, we had to double the morning service every Sunday. Thus, these, our fellow Christians, received strength of belief so desperately needed in the times ahead. Isn't that tremendous? So you, we never know. Whenever we witness, whenever we give the gospel to anybody, we never know the seed that's being planted, how, it's, how God's going to use that, how it's going to be watered, or how it's going to grow. So we need to be prepared and have this skill set uh, ready to use whenever we're witnessing to anybody. Memorize about 15 or 20 good verses, Old Testament, New Testament. Be able to give somebody the entire gospel without ever leaving the Old Testament. Always be ready as we'll learn in First um, Peter 3.15, to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So, we will be evaluated. It's an evaluation to expose how much we did in obedience, not to show how much we failed. Second Corinthians 5.10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one can be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, we need to understand this a little bit. I want to go through some of the details. Bema is the word there used for the judgment seat and refers to a dais or dais, depending on your pronunciation, uh, which refers to an elevated platform. So this would be a bema up here. And uh, this is seen historically. Here's the uh, judgment seat of uh, uh, Gallio in, in Corinth. I showed you these pictures last time, picture when I was there a few years ago with uh, Tommy and Tim LaHaye and Ed Heinsohn, that this is where this judgment will take place. The basis for that judgment is the work. Now, this is talked about in this passage remember it's sandwiched in between the two uses of the word anastrepho the verb and the noun are both used there indicating the product of someone's life that's going to come back when we look at the first uh, corinthians 3 passage dealing with the judgment seat of christ it's the product of our life that is being evaluated 
This is the same word Jesus used um, in, in Revelation twenty two twelve. 12. Uh, my reward is with me to give to everyone according to his work. But as we saw in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Titus 3, 5, we're not saved on the basis of work. This is something else. This is the works that's mentioned in Ephesians 2, 10, a verse that many people don't memorize. They memorize Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but they don't memorize Ephesians 2, 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. That doesn't mean if you don't have them, you weren't saved. But that's your purpose. That's why we were saved is so that we enter into Christian service. We grow to maturity and we serve the Lord in many different ways. But these works are not just just doing good, not just serving the Lord, not just being involved in different things. There, there's a prerequisite, and that pre- prerequisite is being in fellowship. It's walking by the Spirit. When we're out of fellowship, then according to Romans 8... Uh, 1 through 10, we can, we're walking according to the, 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 the sin nature and not according to the Spirit. Galatians 5.16, we either walk according to the flesh or we walk by means of the Spirit. So when we walk by means of the Spirit, he works in us and produces this divine good to separate it from human good or moral good, which is what anybody can produce. Uh, it's, uh, it's distinguished this way. Now, when we go back to Second to Corinthians 5.10, I just want to go through and point out the verbs that are used in, in the Greek. It starts off, we must all appear. This is uh, the word in the, in the Greek is a word day, which indicates absolute necessity. We must, we have to. There, this is not an option. Everyone must be evaluated because this is uh, how we are prepared for the coming kingdom. This is like if you go in the military and you go through boot camp, you go through basic training when you come out, depending on how well you did in basic training, you get assigned your basic uh, skill in the Army. It's your MOS. I don't know if they use that terminology in other services or not. But basically, you're, you're assigned what your job's going to be. If you do really well, then you're going to get better options. If you don't do so well, then you don't get the better options. And so this is the idea when we uh, get out of this life, there's an evaluation, and we'll be determined uh, what we're what we're going to do in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. Now, some people don't like that idea. Some people want everybody to end up with the same thing. Everybody's got the same thing. That's so much like Marxism; it isn't even funny. Uh, so, so we see an element of personal responsibility. First divine institution comes into play here. How we do what we do with what God gives us, the potential that he gives us at the instant of salvation becomes the basis for this evaluation. So it's at the judgment seat of Christ. We've already talked about that term a little bit, uh, where we are evaluated. That, so the purpose for the judgment seat of Christ is explained by this purpose clause that begins with the word that, that for the purpose that each one may receive the things done in the body. That's during this life, phase two. And it's an interesting word used here. It's the word commiso, which means it's a transactional, it's like an economic transaction, and it means to get something back, to get something in return for what you have invested in, to get a return on your effort, to get a return on your labor. So that if you go out and you work 
for somebody for eight hours, then your time has certain value and you're paid a certain amount of money for how much work you do per hour. And that's the idea is you're going to get back for what you put into it. You'll receive the things back that you are uh, that are due to you because of what you have done. Now that first word that's uh, that we have there, the things done in the body, that's that's in italics in your English translation because there's not a, a Greek word that corresponds to it, but it, it it makes sense and it's just added to uh, to for smoothness of reading and understanding in an English Bible. To re- that each one may receive the things in the body, the things which are done in the body, according to what he has done. Now, this is an interesting word because it, 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 a lot of times you look at the word done. This it comes from the verb to do. The basic word in Greek for doing something is the word poieo, which means to you can just do it one time, and you've done it. But this is the word proso. And proso overlaps with poieo, so sometimes there might not be a hard and fast distinction. But the idea in proso is not just something you've done once, but something you practice, something that goes on and on, something that characterizes a person's life. So that fits with the idea of the conduct of a person's life, the the, the uh, honestrefo. So... Uh, what he's done, and then in the body, there's two things that are done, two categories of works. There's good, and there's bad. Now, the word good, there's a couple of different Greek words for good. This is a word that has to do with something of intrinsic value. Intrinsic value. When we get to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3, we'll see that there's six different items that are used metaphorically to describe our works, gold, silver, and precious stones on the one hand, and wood, hay, and straw on the other hand. Well, gold, silver, and precious stone, gold and silver and, and precious stones have an intrinsic value to them. They, they, they are going to continue. They're going to endure. Uh, where, and that's what is, why they're used to illustrate this good of intrinsic value. It's that which is produced in us, by means of God the Holy Spirit as we walk by the Spirit in application of God's Word. It is God who produces this in us. It refers to the fruit of the Spirit. It refers to evangelism at some places. It refers to giving. It refers to many different things, overt as well as in terms of our thinking, that relates to the to the Christian life. Now, the word for bad is there's actually two words that you can find in the text. If you've got New American Standard, NIV, uh, ESV, some of the more modern translations, the, some of the older documents, about four key older documents, have the word uh, phallos, which means something of inferior quality or ordinary. So there it would just mean the idea of something that is worthless. So as you go through life, as you walk by the Spirit, you're going to produce what? You're going to produce good of intrinsic value. If you are not walking by the Spirit, you're going to produce things that are worthless. That's a more general term. But what else are you producing? Well, in Galatians chapter 5, you're walking according to the flesh, so you're producing sin. That's what's in that list. 
So the majority text has the word kakos there. <coughs> now, I believe that the majority text is probably the more accurate reading. But some people have objected to this on theological grounds and said, well, you know, at the judgment seat of Christ, we're not judged for our sins. That's true. We're not judged for our sins. But if we haven't walked by the Spirit, then we're not going to have anything rewardable. But it's very clear that a reward statement is made in relation to sin in the believer's life in Galatians chapter 5, 19 through 21. Here we have it on the screen. At the beginning, Paul makes this list. Now remember, just a couple of verses earlier, in Galatians 5.16, that Paul said, Walk by means of the Spirit, and you will not bring to completion the works of the flesh. Now he's going to tell you what the works of the flesh are. The works of the flesh are evident. It's pretty clear most people don't really need a whole lot of insight, although if you've been a legalistic Christian for a long time, you may think that, that a lot of these aren't really sins because you haven't, every, every now and then you run into somebody who's legalistic and they think they haven't really sinned in a long time because they limit the things that are sinful. The works of the flesh are evident. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness. Now, that's all overt sins, but lewdness is a mental attitude sin related to lust. Idolatry. Now, idolatry can be either overt or can be a mental attitude sin. Paul says that greed is idolatry. Sorcery, that's the word pharmakeia. That's the use of of. Uh, hallucinogenic drugs to, it, for religious purposes to try to get in touch with God. So it involves a lot of different things. Hatred, mental attitude sin, contentions, that's causing division among people. Uh, jealousies, uh, so contention can involve sins of the tongue as well as mental attitude sins. Jealousies, mental attitude sins, outbursts of wrath, that's uh, both mental attitude sin going to overt sins. Selfish ambition, that's mental attitude sins. Dissensions, that's the result of mental attitude sins. Heresies, that's teaching false doctrine. Envy, that's a mental attitude sin. Murders, that's a uh, overt sin. Drunkenness, overt sin. Revelries, overt sin, and the like. Ah, that's an interesting phrase. And the like. It's not an exhaustive list. If your sins aren't there, it doesn't mean they're not sins, okay? There's not an escape hatch there. He says, and I can go on and on and on and on. There are a lot of different sin lists in the Bible, and they're not exhaustive. Human beings, because of the power of the sin nature, can be extremely creative when it comes to sin. I'm not going to ask for any testimonies right now, and Jeff is prohibited from giving us a testimony related to that when he gives the mission report later. He can't tell what anybody said on the mission field. Okay, I'm just giving him a hard time. All right. So as Paul finishes, he says, of which I tell you beforehand that those who practice, this is why I went over to this verse. It's that same word we had in, in uh, 2 Corinthians 5. It's that word proso. It's not that those who do such things, like some people say, well, if I did it one time or if I did it ten times. No, it's proso. It has to do with practice because you're out of fellowship. You're not confessing sin, and you're not getting back in fellowship. You're not turning back to the Lord and, and dealing with that. So as a result of that, you're just continuously staying out of fellowship 
and not producing anything uh, of any eternal value. So he says that those who practice such things will what? Will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now this is a whole nother problem because there are a lot of people who think that inheriting the kingdom of God is another way of talking about entering into heaven or being saved. But remember, number one, in this passage, Paul is already talking to those who are believers. They're already justified. He's made that very clear many times all through Galatians that he treats them as those who are clearly justified. But he says, if you keep sinning, it's not that you're going to lose your salvation, but you won't inherit the kingdom. Inheriting the kingdom is something that is beyond entering the kingdom. They may be in the kingdom, but not have possession or ownership, that is, responsibilities and roles within the, within the kingdom. So what determines that takes us back to the judgment seat of Christ. So the next critical passage to go to is the one we talked about Sunday morning in, uh, in, in our review in Matthew, and that's 1 Corinthians 3, uh, 11 and following. For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, remember this. Paul views the Corinthians as believers. He assumes, based on his personal knowledge of having been there, that the people he's writing to have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Savior. But he also recognizes that they haven't grown very much, and there are some real problems in that congregation, and we'll look at that in a, in a few minutes, that they are as, as corrupt morally still as they were before they were saved. A lot of them haven't changed a whole lot, if any. So he's warning them about the consequences of failure and disobedience in the Christian life. So he says, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, that's intrinsic good, wood, hay, and straw, that has no lasting value. Then he says, each one's work will become clear. There's that word work again. There's an evaluation of the judgment seat of Christ for work, but it's not for eternal destiny. It says, each one's work will become clear for the day, that is the day of Christ, the day of judgment, will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work. So there's that word work again. Now, dokimazo is a Greek word that means test or evaluation. And what's, what's important about that word is it, it, it's a test to, to expose what's good. It's not a test to expose what's bad. So in the process here, he uses the illustration like a, like, as if you're refining, um, refining metal, refining gold or refining silver. And when you put the metal in the, in, in the refiner's fire, then what is destroyed are the impurities. The wood, hay, and straw burns up. What's left is what survives the fire. What's left is what has an eternal value. So it's not exposing the wood, hay, and straw. It's exposing that which is going to last into eternity. Each one's work is exposed what kind it is, whether it's what? Good, agathos, or whether it's bad, Kakos. Remember, if it's if it any work 
that's that that sin is is just going to be it has no value doesn't survive whether it's moral good or whether it is uh, something that is is wrong or evil remember paul uses the term sin in galatians 5:22 and following or excuse me 5:19 and following to talk about uh those those sins and those sins will prevent if somebody lives in them, practices them, doesn't get in fellowship, doesn't ever walk with the Lord, then they won't inherit the kingdom. They'll be there, but they won't inherit the kingdom. And that's that's what ha- happens here. It says, if anyone's work which he's built on it endures, that is, if you've got agathos, it's going, you're going to receive a reward. But if anyone's work is burned because it's, it's kakath, it has no eternal value. It's wood, hay, and straw. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss. That means he won't realize the rewards that God set aside for him. But he himself will be saved. See, there's a phase one term. He's going to be saved. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. So they're going to be saved. They're going to be spending eternity with God in the kingdom and in heaven. But guess what? They're not going to be owners, participants in the kingdom. No roles and responsibilities won't be ruling and reigning with Christ. So if anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet as through fire. So what do we conclude from this? Number one, there'll be an evaluation for every believer's life. Every one of us is going to have an evaluation. We can't determine now... None of us can look at our life and say, well I, can't, well, I was in fellowship then, I was out of fellowship then. We can't do it. It's impossible. You can't figure it out. So all you can do is keep short accounts. There will be an evaluation. The issue isn't sin or salvation. The issue is to reward faithfulness, to reward service, to reward spiritual growth, to reward time spent that's been redeemed walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. So the judgment seat of Christ is for believers only. It's not for unbelievers. It's not to, if anybody fails, it's not that they go to the lake of fire. They are saved yet as through fire. And then the fourth point is that the judgment seat is described in cultural terms, which could refer to either a civil adjudication or the seat of judges in an evaluation. They determine who wins, and who doesn't? Now, that's going to show up in a number of things a little later on. So the issue is for us to live a certain way. And that doesn't just involve an external lifestyle. See, that's where legalism creeps in. Legalism creeps in because you create a little list uh, of things that, oh, I have to do these five things or these six things or seven things, or if I don't do those five things, I'm okay. It has to do with a relationship with God where you're walking by the Spirit and learning the Word. Now, there's one other passage I want to go to, and uh, we'll just kind of hit the high points going through this. So I may go through the slides because it deals once again with this problem of understanding inheriting the kingdom and this problem dealing with sin, that sin impacts the judgment seat of Christ, not not because those sins weren't judged at the cross, but because if you've got 10 hours in your life and you spend 9 hours and 59 minutes walking by the Spirit and one minute walking by the Holy Spirit, 
you're going to come up with bubkis at the judgment seat of Christ. And it's not because you're being judged at the judgment seat of Christ for sin. It's that when the works are evaluated, there just isn't going to be anything there. So we have another one of those sin lists. There's several of them in Scripture. And they tend to end with some kind of statement related to failure to inherit. And this one is the one in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. So you might want to turn with me in your Bible, and we'll just touch on this. I haven't covered this in a while. But this is the kind of thing you run into, especially if you're talking to legalistic Christians, those who haven't been well taught in the Scriptures, or some that have, but they, they just haven't seen this put together this way. Uh, and and the, the, the third verse, verse 11, is the one that, uh, that's a really critical one for understanding it, but you have to understand the verses 9 and 10 first. Paul says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Well, what does he mean by unrighteous? Does unrighteous mean positionally unrighteous or experientially unrighteous? What exactly does it mean? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Now he's going to define unrighteous. Fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites. See, I'm going to go to jail because I've read this passage. If I was in Canada or England, a few other European countries, I'd be going to jail. It's hate speech. It's just a list of sins. Thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. No one who does this will inherit the kingdom of God. So there's two key things that we have to understand here. One is, what does it mean to be unrighteous? And what does it mean to inherit the kingdom? Now, the term inheriting the kingdom is understood two ways by people, as I indicated when I talked about Galatians 5. One means to enter the kingdom. That means if you are a thief, if you're a drunk and you've been thrown in the drunk tank uh, or an extortioner, you're going to, you go to jail. Oops, why do we have a jail ministry if these people can't get saved? But isn't that what it says? If enter the kingdom mean if, if inherit the kingdom means enter the kingdom, then why have a jail ministry? Because they can't get to heaven. Because they've done these things. That doesn't even make sense. So inherit the kingdom has to mean something other than entering the kingdom. And that's the second view, that it means to have a share in the privileges and the possessions of the kingdom. Okay? Ruling and reigning with Christ. So the phrase inherit the kingdom is used in six key passages, Matthew 25, 34, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10, 1 Corinthians 15, 50, Galatians 5, 21, and Ephesians 5, 5. Ephesians 5, 5, Galatians 5, 21, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 10 are the critical ones. And we've already looked at Galatians 5, 21. Now we're looking at this one. I broke it out this way because... The introductory question is in verse 9. The sin list is in the 9b through 10, and 11 is a conclusion. So we have to understand what it means to be unrighteous. We have to understand what it means to inherit the kingdom. We have to understand this phrase, such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of our God.
Those are the two questions. Okay, now let's understand something about who these Corinthians are. Because when Paul says, such were some of you, what has he been telling them that you are? Uh, We'll get to this in a minute. Such were some of you. That word you is a second person plural. It's probably a plural of y'all, all y'all. Such were all y'all, okay? So he's talking to these Corinthians, and we call them the carnal Corinthians because that's what Paul called them at the beginning of chapter 3. They were carnal. There's hardly any of them that are really serious about their relationship with God. Let's see how the whole congregation is characterized by Paul in this epistle. He says they're divisive and fractious in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and following. He says they're enthralled by Greek pagan philosophers. They're more concerned about Plato and Aristotle and Socrates and Epictetus and many others than they are with what Jesus and Paul have taught them. They're carnal. They're filled with jealousy and strife in 1 Corinthians 3, 1 through 3. They're self-important uh, in 1 Corinthians 4.8. They're filled with boasting in 1 Corinthians 1.29, 3.18, and 4.7. They're arrogant in 3.6, 4.7, and 4.18. They're licentious, sexually licentious and morally permissive in chapter 5. That's what precedes this chapter. They, they, they don't make an issue out of all of this sexual immorality. It doesn't bother them. They're sexually immoral again after this chapter in chapter 7. Chapter 11, he describes them as gluttonous drunkards. They're getting drunk at the Lord's table. They were wonderful people. They were a party town. They had a big time. Remember, it wasn't any different from Houston. Corinth was a harbor town. It was a, right, and people were coming there from all over the world, just like Houston. I think studies have shown Houston has a more diverse population than any city in the world. See, they've come here to hear you give them the gospel. They were self-absorbed and pagan in their view of the spiritual gifts, chapters 12 through 14. So Paul really doesn't think of the, the people he's writing to as being experientially righteous. Now, we've talked about inheritance, the second word here, but in this slide there's two key words, adikos. Now, dikos refers to righteousness, that which is right, that which is just. The A in front of it refers to something that's not. Now, does this mean not righteous, indicating those who are not positionally righteous or unsaved, or does it refer to wrongdoers? Well, I think it refers to wrongdoers. Now, in the first verse, people go there and they say, uh, well, this, this is how the word adikos is used, and it sounds like unbelievers. He says, does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, that probably refers to unbelievers at this point for two reasons. Reason number one is it has that definite article, the, in front of it, and it does in the Greek. And the second is it's contrasted to believers, the saints. But saints can also be rebellious, just like I've listed with the Corinthians. Now, when we get down to verse 9, we have this word adikos used again, and there's no article with it. See, in the English, the the is in italics. That means it's not there in the Greek, and that's important. 
The verse right before verse 9, verse 8 says, you yourselves do wrong. That's the word adikos, wrongdoers. Now, there's a difference between being positionally unrighteous and just being someone who sins, who does wrong things. All Christians do wrong things. Uh, So verse 8 is the immediate context for verse 9, not verse 1. Verse 8 says, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. He's assuming they're Christians, isn't he? They're doing wrong things to their fellow believers, the brethren. Now, Jody Dillo states this in his Reign of the Servant Kings. The phrase in verse 9 is not the same as the wicked or the unrighteous in verse 1. In verse 1, the adjective has the article. And it is definite, referring to a class of people. But in verse 9, it's without the article. The articular construction emphasizes identity. The anarthrous, that's the without the article, the anarthrous construction emphasizes character. Because the same word is used twice, once with the article in verse 1 and once without it in verse 9, it may be justifiable to press for the standard grammatical distinction here. If so, then the adikos of verse 9 are not the wicked or the unrighteous of verse 1. They are not of that definite class of people who are non-Christians. Rather, as to their behavior traits, they are behaving in an unrighteous manner or character. They're acting like unbelievers. In other words, the use of the wicked in verse 1 signifies being But the use of wicked in verse 9 signifies not being, but doing, just behavior. And that was their problem. Okay? So, those who are living like unbelievers aren't going to inherit the kingdom. They'll be there, but they won't inherit. Now, when Paul says in verse 11, such were some of you, we have to look at that phrase, some of you. Some is a subset of the broader category, you or y'all. So here we have our graph. In yellow, we have y'all, the whole group. Some represents a subset of the whole group. Now, there's two ways to interpret this phrase. The common way is this, that the sum of you is a smaller group of believers in a larger group of unbelievers. And it would look like this. You all are unbelievers, some of you are believers. But when Paul says such were some of you all, the you all is not referring to the unbelievers in Corinth. It's referring to the Corinthians in the Corinthian church that he's addressing, that he treats as believers. So the some then must refer to a smaller group of believers within a larger group of believers. So the yellow represents the you all. They're believers, but they haven't changed. They're still living like they did before they were saved. He says, such were some of you. In other words, a small subset has changed. They're the spiritual believers. They're walking by the Spirit. They're changing. They don't, they're not characterized by what was there. So he says in verse 11, such were some of you all. But all y'all were washed, all y'all were sanctified, but and all y'all were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus. But only some of them 
experienced any change. Okay, while Jeff comes up here, just walked out, Atticus in verse 9 doesn't refer to unbelievers. It refers to uh, the wrongdoer in verse 8. And the context is therefore addressing believers that only believers are heirs of God. So in verses 9 to 10, inheritance is based on human action. These believers are in danger of losing rewards. So we can sin and treat 1 John 1, 9 as a license, but the danger is a loss of reward. Let's close in prayer, and then I'm going to have Jeff come up and talk about their, their uh, trip. Uh, Father, thank you for this time that we have together. Challenge us with what we've learned, that this is an important distinction that we have in the Christian life, that we either walk by the Spirit, we walk on to the sin nature, and it will impact the end game at the judgment seat of Christ. We need to live each day in light of eternity. Live each day in light of future evaluation at the judgment seat of Christ. And we pray that we would be responsive to that challenge. In Christ's name, amen. Good evening. Buenas noches. How's everyone doing? Oh, I can't see it here, Robbie. No, you can't. Oh, wonderful. You have to look at the screen. All right. Um, I just wanted to take a few minutes and uh, share the story of uh, our second, uh, actually, it's our third trip to Natal. And... Um, I guess I, I need to start by saying thank you uh, for the prayers, uh, for the support that got us out there. Uh, we really appreciate it. Barb was uh, helping with some logistics behind the scene, and uh, Becky as well, and I know many of you were praying, and uh, so thank you very much. Uh, we had a re- really good trip. Uh, we got there Monday. Uh, we were able, I was telling uh, Alan, we were able to uh, walk into the church uh, we, we got there around 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon, uh, got the rental car, drove over to the church. We were supposed to start teaching at 7.30. Everything was set up. We literally walked up to the pulpit, put our stuff down. Classroom was full. We started teaching. So uh, that was, for us, that was very encouraging because uh, it really kind of demonstrated to us that the folks there in Natal, you know, they had put the support and the effort in. Uh, without us being there and uh, so we really appreciated that um, we spent um, uh, this this time we spent uh, the week we only taught in the evenings and we taught uh, about two and a half hours in the evening had a little bit of a, that's my phone by the way thank you <laughs> the red button sorry about that at least it didn't ring when when Robbie was teaching, but uh, yeah. So we had um, in the evenings we we had about two and a half hours, and uh, so slowing the pace down like that allowed us to interact with everybody a lot more. Um, it also gave everybody an opportunity to kind of digest uh, what we were teaching, which was Galatians. Uh, that's what we covered this time, the Book of Galatians, uh, and then uh, we went through the whole week. We started with maybe 60 students and uh, uh, 
uh, moved through the week, uh, we maintained maybe 45 or 50. Uh, when we got to Saturday, we went up to about 60 again and finished Sunday uh, with 60. And so we're really excited about that. Um, we had, um, essentially, we covered Galatians tonight. Um, it's, it's one of the big questions that came up was inherit the kingdom of God. Um, and so we spent, Doug and I spent quite a bit of time um, answering a lot of questions. And uh, one thing that came out of that, and I'd share it just as a, maybe an encouragement for you guys and, and for Robbie as well, but um, it's really uh, very interesting when we, uh, when you're there, perhaps, you know, talking in front of people and, and you get asked this question and, and just right away you're like, well, hey, let's talk about this word inheritance. And you start walking them through the Bible, um, take them over, um, in some of the examples that Robbie showed us this evening, and, and we were able to talk him through that. And so, you know, uh, for us, that was uh, a, a clearly a testimony to, uh, you know, the Holy Spirit's enabling power. He, over in John 14, he tells us that he enables us to remember. But also, too, it's a reflection of the training that uh, and the teaching that we get here. And um, I have never done this, but... You know, sometimes it gets in the past, it, it's like, gosh, we're doing this and this and this. Um, and, and it gets to be uh, a little bit of a, a chore, but um, it's worth it. And it, it really helped us a lot. Um, and really what, what it was, we were able to do um, is, uh, you know, we knew how to think instead of being told what to think. And when you have that ability, which is, is what we get here at this church, when you have that ability, it really makes it really easy to flip through the Bible. You get, And we got asked some tough questions. We got taken over to Hebrews. Uh, we spoke about inheritance, so we got taken over to Hebrews 1, 14, and then Hebrews 3 and 6. And, uh, you know, we were able to answer their questions and explain. Don't don't know what the, the outcome of that is. Um, uh a lot of Calvinists over there, and so eternal security is is questionable. But uh, we did share the truth uh, with them. I wanted to uh, take a minute and share just a couple things with the uh, from the blog with you guys. Let's see here. How does one scroll through this? Just scroll. Okay. I do. I actually have a computer that works. Two fingers. And you just ah, thank you. Doesn't take perfect. Thank you, sir. More training. Okay, two fingers. All right, perfect. So, um, uh, by the way, this this blog is available on the West Houston Bible Church site. Um, Barb was uh, instrumental in keeping it up. Uh, Doug and I both had written some posts. Uh, uh, Becky uh, Becky Yeaman has uh, edited them for us, so we didn't look stupid. Uh, but uh, so I encourage you guys to read through the post. It, it gives you a very detailed view of uh, what we taught, what we were uh, what we were dealing with. But I, I wanted to show you guys a couple of pictures. Um, this is uh, Pastor Luciano, right here. Um, this is his uh, lovely bride. Uh, I'm going to say this in Portuguese. Cagiria, uh, Cagiria, um, and uh, Pastor Luciano. This is his third time with us. Um, he's been to both of our Romans conferences, and we invited him to teach with us at our Galatians conference. Uh, he's a local pastor there in 
just outside of the city of Natal. But he has taken uh, the Romans curriculum, and uh, he's actually started a verse-by-verse study at his church. Um, and so we were very excited about that because uh, p- part of the reason that we go there and part of our philosophy uh, when we uh, go out in the mission field is to create replication um, and, you know, uh, encourage people to uh, develop some independence. And so for us, this was an example of that happening. Um, let's do this real quick. Uh, real, this is uh, Marilia. Maria Mueller, uh, she is our uh, translator. She also translated everything from uh, the English curriculum over to Portuguese. And she worked with us uh, translating for myself and Doug uh, when we taught. And uh, very tireless, uh, a great young lady. has been a great blessing to us. Um, and then this... This guy here is a heretic. We need to pray for him. But uh, let's see. where. Okay, here we go. Uh, so this is a picture. Uh, if you remember a couple of weeks ago, uh, Robbie mentioned that uh, there was a group in Brazil, Light in Action, that got robbed. And and uh, I think it got mentioned a couple times from the pulpit. And I wanted to kind of introduce you guys to them uh, as they've been so instrumental in what we're doing in Natal by uh, introducing us to uh, the local pastors and churches and helping set the conference up. Um, and so this is a picture of the family. We're, we're missing uh, Arlen and Cynthia here. Uh, they were in Africa on a, a mission trip. They are uh, Light in Action has produced a 11-part uh, video presentation chronological presentation of the gospel. And uh, they were meeting with a group called Sat7, uh, which... Uh, works in uh, all over the world, but uh, is big in the Middle East with uh, satellite uh, Christian broadcasting into the Middle East. And and so they're trying to get uh, their chronological presentation of the gospel onto Sat7. They're very excited about that. But they did, um, I wanted you guys to see a picture because I know many of you uh, prayed. I know many of you uh, gave me uh, financial support to take them as well as gifts. And so... In just a moment, I'll read their thank you letter. But before we get to that, um, I wanted to introduce everybody to, this is Pastor Junior. And we met him at the Chakra, which is the farm. And Pastor Junior works with uh, uh, pastors on the interior of Natal. It's, we call it, They call it the interior, we call it the country. But these are pastors that are uh, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 kilometers outside of Natal. Um, and in Brazil, when, when you leave the city, uh, you're basically poor. So there's not a lot of support. Uh, what, and what Pastor uh, Junior does is he brings support to them. And so uh, he wanted to meet us. Um, we, we explained to him what we did. We showed him a little bit of the Galatians curriculum. And he invited us back. Uh, he's going to assemble um, a group of pastors, uh, maybe about 15 or 20, that work in the interior and we're going to do um, either probably Romans. I think Romans 1 through 8 is a really good place to start with anyone. But we were excited about that. Um, in addition to uh, that invitation, um, we also uh, got introduced to uh, Pastor. They're all Pastor Juniors over there. I don't know why, but it was Pastor Junior, uh, 
Encado, I think is how you pronounce it, but uh, he's the pastor of the largest uh, Baptist church in Natal, and uh, he invited us back, and he's got a congregation of about seven or 800, and so uh, that'll be very interesting to see what the Lord does with that. Um, so we're excited. Um, there's There was uh, a lot of fruit, a lot of sharing the truth. We got a lot of questions uh, from the audience. Um, we really felt like um, they were engaged and listening, uh, but just like anyone else, they need repetition, repetition, repetition to think this through. Um, one other fact before I read this letter, 19 different churches and 11 denominations attended our conference, uh, Brethren, Pentecostal, Church of Christ, Reform, Baptist, Evangelical, uh, Nazarene, and a couple others. Um, but all of them sat and listened for the whole conference. And so we were really uh, impressed with that. Um, and again, a testimony to God's Word. And But anyway, I know it's late. You guys have been here a while. Let me read this letter because I promised Arlen and Cynthia that I would. Uh, they wanted to express their gratitude for the support from uh, West Houston Bible Church, and we'll do that. And then I want to close out with uh, a verse that I think uh, is fitting for what we're doing. All right, so on behalf of Light in Action, uh, the Light in Action team, we want to personally say thank you through Jeff for all your support and prayers for our team and also the church here in Natal. It is always so beautiful to see that uh, the reality of the body of Christ and the unifying purpose of proclaiming the gospel that moves strangers to give and pray for people that they've never personally met. Uh, They were very touched um, by uh, the outpouring that you guys have shared with them. And I took much of the booty with me. Um, Electronics are extremely expensive in Brazil. Uh, iPhones are Two or three thousand dollars, and we had some iPhones donated. Um, we took a couple computers over, so they were very, very blessed. Thank you guys so much for the gifts after the robbery that took place. Thank you for your sustaining prayers. Thank you for all the donations that came down with Jeff. They're such a huge blessing to us all. And thank you guys so much for sharing Jeff and Doug, and being such an integral part of what Jesus is doing uh, through them here, and through the clear teaching of His Word. The doors are wide open for more of you to come. That's their invitation and mine. Um, if and, and we hope that, that you do and we can meet you. If not here in Brazil, then hopefully someday when we are here in the U.S. Thank you for partnering with us uh, together with this desire for people to know who Jesus Christ is and the gospel of grace. In the Lamb, Arlen and Cynthia. So that was there. Thank you to uh, the support that you guys provided. And um, let me just close down by reading through a verse that, and Doug and I talked about this uh, quite a bit. And and we just uh, really, um, what happened there in Natal with uh, the conference and the invitations with Pastor Junior, um, the the success that we had bringing, you know, 19 churches together, 10 or 11 different domina- denominations for a week under the same roof, being taught, uh, is really a testament to God's Word. And so I wanted to read a passage out of uh, Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11. And this is one of Isaiah's 
celebration passages of the salvation of Israel, both uh, the salvation of their souls and also the salvation of their lives through sanctification. But um, I'll pick up in verse 8. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways. And my thoughts than your thoughts, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven, and do not return there, but water the earth and make it bring forth a bud, that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. And this is the verse that uh, Doug and I prayed on every night. So shall my word go, so shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please. And it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So, God's word's being shared in Natal, and uh, it's doing what God pleases. Thank you very much. Good night.